Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Last week, we met the ambitious Count of Tur, Ludist. We also examined his history and why exactly he and Gregory were almost destined to clash. Now, I know I promised to talk about the trial this week, but there was simply too much to get through, so we're going to split the remaining narrative in two. We'll leave the events of the trial till next week. This week will be a little shorter than usual, as we focus on Ludist and his allies in court attempting to corner Gregory in episode 29, To Frame a Bishop. Once someone has been told something is true, it is much harder to convince them that it is actually false. Recent studies show that even when a news institution fact-checks a false claim, more people will still believe the falsehood if they were introduced to it first. But the struggle with misinformation is not a new phenomenon. It occurred in the late antique period as well. If Fredegund or Chilperic came out and accused Gregory of something, it would look suspicious to those who knew of the events at the trial of Praetextatus. But now that Ludist had made his claim about slander, it was out there, ready to be manipulated. And the royals would definitely try their best to do exactly that. The moment Ludist accused Gregory of slandering Queen Fredegund, he shifted their local dispute into the national sphere. Their dispute was now of interest to the whole kingdom. Because, if you'll remember back to our episode on the trial of Praetextatus, Gregory was the leading voice of opposition to royal influence over the clergy. During the trial, he had even refused a massive bribe from Fredegund, and openly and publicly accused Chilperic of not acting honourably or fairly in accordance with the law. And how do you think Fredegund and Chilperic felt about that? Now, Chilperic couldn't allow Ludus to threaten his delicate relationship with the church. He had worked very hard during the trial to create a situation where he could banish Praetextatus without outraging the majority of the clergy. His influence over church matters was growing, but he needed to remain careful. Gregory was an influential and popular figure, and it would only take a little push for many powerful clergymen to line up behind him in support. So Chilperic removed Ludist and punished him for his actions, no doubt to show the bishops he was serious about respecting them and their positions. But, since Ludist had gotten the ball rolling, the royals decided he might still be useful. Now, I must say, the likelihood that Gregory and his friends had slandered the queen in some way behind closed doors seems very high. He hated Fredegund and Chilperic, and at this point it must have been fairly common knowledge amongst the upper echelons of society that he opposed their interests. But Gregory wasn't some drunk princeling spouting off like Clovis had been. There was no way he would have said anything even slightly incriminating in public. It seems much more likely to me 
that Ludist knew he could make such an accusation because it was an entirely believable one. It was in threatening Gregory's friends that he had pushed too far. So let's take a look at the actual frame job. And even though it worked, I must say, it is fairly complicated and could have fallen apart at multiple points. Ludist's plan involved the two men named Rekolf we met at the end of last week's episode. Since they're both called Rekolf, we're going to use their roles to differentiate them. Priest Rekolf and Subdeacon Rekolf. Both of these men worked for Gregory, and it is certainly possible they heard something more substantial than rumours to inspire their claims of slander. But it was the subdeacon Rickolf who informed Ludist, according to Gregory. Our bishop writes that, quote, This Rickolf was as wayward and unprincipled a man as Ludist himself. He had started plotting with Ludist the previous year. What he needed was some grounds for taking offence so that, once embroiled with me, he might have a pretext for going over to Ludist. He soon found these grounds and joined his patron. End quote. Now, Ludist's movements in this period are a little unclear due to Gregory's usual muddled structuring of events. It is possible Subdeacon Rickolf left to join Ludist after the Count had been released and returned to Tours, but more likely is that he joined Ludist while the Count was still with Chilperic. The next line shows Gregory's distrust of this pairing, saying that, quote, For some four months he laid all manner of traps and snares for me. End quote. This line seems to imply planning before they return to Tours and set their traps into motion. Now, not to state the obvious, but it is important to remember that it is Gregory who is providing this information for us. And, as always, he is twisting his narrative to benefit his point of view. What was this dispute that allowed the subdeacon Rickolf to leave Gregory's service? Why and how was Ludist allowed to return to Tours, and when? So many unanswered questions that might distract the reader from the plotter's villainy and Gregory's innocence and piety. So remember... Always question, and always a little pinch of salt. Anyway, after their scheming was finished, Ludist and the subdeacon Rickolf returned to Tours. Not to march in and accuse Gregory anew, oh no. Their plan was a little sneakier than that. Instead, the two men visited Gregory, and the subdeacon Rickolf begged the bishop to forgive him for their dispute and allow him to return to Gregory's household. Then Gregory states, quote, I did so, I admit. I publicly took into my household this man who was my private enemy. End quote. This reads like a confession of a mistake because, with the benefit of hindsight, Gregory writing these events understood how he had fallen into their trap. With Subdeacon Rickolf back in Gregory's household, publicly, Ludist left. Then, he openly accused the Subdeacon 
of having told him that Gregory and his friends had slandered the Queen. Ludus then had the subdeacon arrested. Now, this is kind of brilliant if you ask me. Ludus's previous problem was that he knew Gregory and his friends had probably said such things, but he had no proof. So, he and subdeacon Rickolf engineered a situation where the clergyman would be believably estranged from the bishop, with enough time to be spurned and let slip the quote-unquote truth to the count, and then return and be publicly welcomed back by Gregory, underlining in the minds of the public the close relationship between bishop and subdeacon. So, he had both made the subdeacon look close enough to have heard such a thing, and made it look like he might have told Ludist whilst estranged. Again, this is kind of brilliant. Of course, Gregory notes a wrinkle in Ludist's plan. He claims that as soon as Ludist had left after bringing subdeacon Rickolf to Gregory, the subdeacon fell to his feet and confessed everything, saying to Gregory, quote, Unless you help me quickly, I shall die. Egged on by Ludist, I have said certain things which I ought not to have said. You must send me away to one of the other kingdoms. If you refuse to do this, I shall pay the penalty with my life. End quote. Gregory writes that he answered, quote, If you really have said anything foolish, your words shall be upon your own head. I will certainly not send you away to any other kingdom, for if I did, I should incur King Chilperic's suspicion. End quote. Now, was this conversation real? Did the subdeacon Rickolf really confess so readily to his plots? It is hard to tell. On the one hand, he was a minor figure who had gotten wrapped up in the machinations of bishops and kings. It is entirely reasonable for him to suddenly fear that he'd gotten a little too deep. And Gregory did have a reputation for protecting people, so this begging might have worked. Plus, Gregory's response does make sense, showing an awareness of the delicate and dangerous situation he was now in. Knowing some kind of accusation was now coming, Gregory was right. If he sent the subdeacon Rickolf away, it would look like he was trying to hide evidence. Ludist or Chilperic might have known this, and known that now, whatever Gregory did, it would work in their favour. On the other hand though, the conversation is so convenient for Gregory in his defence that it must be questioned. Especially because, once Ludist arrested the subdeacon Rickolf, the man immediately declared that what Ludist had said was true, pointing again to Gregory's friends Gallienus and Archdeacon Plato, and declaring that they were there when Gregory had slandered Fredegund. You could say that he was forced to do this by Ludist. That is certainly what Gregory is implying. But there is reason to doubt this narrative. Things really started to get bad once the other Rickolf, the priest, entered the story. While the subdeacon Rickolf's job was to provide the evidence, the priest Rickolf had an equally important role. 
His job was to be there as a ready candidate once Gregory was removed. With Ludus support, he might have stood a good chance of becoming the new bishop, and thus Ludus and Chilperic would have not only removed a major rival, but also replaced him with a grateful new ally. We can tell things are closing in on Gregory when this priest Rickolf confronts him during the sixth day of Easter week, abusing the bishop and spitting at him, and apparently even getting violent. This behaviour, that seems slightly out of the blue, was explained when the next day, Ludist returned and arrested Gallienus and Archdeacon Plato. This is why the priest Rickolf felt confident enough to insult Gregory in his own church, placing himself in open opposition, so that when Gregory was removed in disgrace, he would be the natural reaction pick. Now that he had a solid witness in the subdeacon, Ludist must have felt it was enough to move without angering the church establishment too much. We get the impression that the loss of his friends and the difficult situation he suddenly found himself in was quite hard on Gregory. He says only, quote, I was grieved and vexed in spirit, end quote. When news of his friend's arrest reached him, he retreated to his oratory, seeking comfort in the Bible. Of course, he notes that the Bible happened to open to a supportive passage for him, just as Ludist's ferry across the Loire mysteriously sank in the river, nearly killing the Count. But, at this point, we can expect such tales of heavily implied divine intervention from Gregory. Still, the usually combative bishop strikes a surprisingly weak and melancholy figure. Perhaps, having just seen the bias that happened at Praetex Tartus's trial, he was not too optimistic about his odds. Both Gallienus and Archdeacon Plato were fettered and paraded in front of the Queen in their underwear. They were apparently sentenced to death for their alleged crimes of hearing Gregory maybe say some bad things about the Queen according to that one subdeacon. But Chilperic seems to have realised that this would be a bit too far, and he spared them, instead keeping them under guard, but unharmed. The troubles for Gregory, however, were not yet over. There was one more twist to the plan before the trial would begin. See, Ludist and the royals must have known that Gregory was far more popular than Ludist was in Tours. This would have given Gregory the courage and authority that he needed to go into any trial. So, they chose to remove this as best they could. The actions taken thus far in this plot were still mostly thanks to Ludist. Fredegund and Chilperic were not taking open actions themselves, and instead hiding behind their subordinate to escape blame and look more impartial. Now, Nelson, why are you so sure that the royals are in on this conspiracy if there is no evidence that they took part? Well, besides their hatred of Gregory, and the fact the prisoners were paraded in front of Fredegund, it is the next event that really reveals the royal's complicity, at least in my opinion. 
two nobles named Berulf and Eunomius spread a rumour that Turs was about to be attacked by King Guntram. Using this as a pretext, they filled the city with their soldiers, posting many guards, especially at the gates. Now, there is no benefit for them making such an action, except if a powerful person asked them to. Eunomius was a count like Ludist, but Berulf was a duke, meaning Ludist didn't have the authority or influence to order them around. Only Chilperic or Fredegund would have been able to do this. And this wasn't an innocent scare either. Gregory records that the two men sent messengers to him and advised him to pack up the church's finest treasures and escape to Clermont-Ferrand. This was an obvious trap, and Gregory did not fall for it, instead staying where he was and waiting for the accusations to become a trial. If successful in fooling the bishop, Gregory's attempted escape would have sealed his guilt. By realising this was a trap and staying where he was, he at least bought himself a fair shot at his trial. Now, all out of traps, Chilperic calls a council of all the bishops of his kingdom to investigate the matter, just as he had done with Praetix Tartus. The problem was, Praetix Tartus had been accused of treason by supporting Merovic's rebellion. Gregory was only accused of slander, a much weaker charge. On top of this, the evidence was also weaker than it had been for Praetix Tartus largely thanks to Gregory's reserved responses. If the bishop had sent the subdeacon Rickolf away, or attacked the priest Rickolf when challenged, or attempted to stop the arrest of his friends, or tried to run when tempted by the nobles, he would have been finished. Any of these actions would probably have been enough for the royals to remove him. After all, Chilperic's authority was stronger after the issue with Praetex Tartus, as was Fredegund's. For all the tricks and traps, Gregory was still definitely in with a shot. Now, just to demonstrate how delicate the situation was, Gregory tells us of a particular story about our friend Subdeacon Rickolf. He notes that the Subdeacon told many lies about him while being interrogated, but he was confronted by a carpenter named Modestus, who said, quote, What a wretched creature you are to conspire and plot against your own bishop in this contumacious way. You would do better to keep your mouth shut, to ask your bishop's pardon, and so once more obtain his grace. End quote. The subdeacon Rickolf responded, quote, this fellow tells me to keep my mouth shut, instead of revealing the truth. He is an enemy of the Queen, for he wants to prevent us from investigating the charge brought against her. Fredegund soon heard of this confrontation and had Modestus arrested, beaten, and imprisoned. Now, why this random carpenter was talking to an important prisoner? I have no idea, but it actually doesn't really matter. The whole story is just a setup for his miraculous escape 
and meeting with Gregory to show Gregory's divine favour. But the inclusion of the story also serves to prepare the reader for just how much of a pit of snakes Gregory is about to walk into. But things had not gone entirely to plan in Ludist's complicated series of traps. Gregory had moved with an awareness and care, allowing him to escape the most condemning actions and instead arrive at his trial with a decent defence. What was that defence, and will it succeed? Let's find out next week in the trial of Bishop Gregory of Tours. See you then. <laughs>